0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. Welcome to those of you who could be here in the sanctuary with us and those of you who can't and are at home. We're glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 verse 27. Open your bibles, your phones, your tablets, your your device of choice. Acts chapter 5 verse 27, we'll read through verse 32. Acts 5:27 through 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them saying, "We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The word witness is a key word in the book of Acts. It shows up 20 times in 28 chapters, and it it appears in our text today. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the apostles and the infant church are rising up by the power of the Holy Spirit to testify about Jesus in the face of much resistance. In last week's text with Pastor Ken, You saw apostles arrested for a second time, a miraculous angelic release from prison, and their stop at the temple to keep teaching about Jesus, this outlawed message. So, to no surprise, they are arrested again. They're being questioned by the religious rulers. These Jewish leaders, called the Sanhedrin, were the high council of Jerusalem, the highest court in the land the people of Israel, and they governed religious and political issues that Rome didn't want to mess with, that Rome didn't want to deal with. So the apostles now are before the Sanhedrin fielding questions and accusations. And here's where we're going this morning. One, we'll just walk through the text and let it unfold and see what's happening here. Two, briefly consider our witness in light of the Apostles' witness, and three, fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the Exalted One, and the Exalted One is who we will focus on this morning. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We're always in need of your help, and you're always giving help. So, Father, at this time and this moment, I pray that you would give us light that we can see. I pray that you would warm our hearts, that we would believe what we are seeing and be led to worship you from what we are seeing. You strengthen our hands to walk in what we are seeing. So Lord, do a work by your Spirit in us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So at the core of our passage... The high priest is making a two-part accusation and the apostles are giving a two-part answer. Look at verse 28. Accusation number one, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Accusation number two, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And the apostles' response, Response to accusation number one, we must obey God rather than men. Response to accusation two, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, but God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To see this more clearly, we'll break it down into its smaller parts. Accusation one, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have disobeyed us. The the apostles' response, we must obey God rather than men. As often happens, those who oppose Jesus tend to undermine their own efforts, undermine themselves. Here, the high priest and his accusation that the apostles filled Jerusalem with their teaching unwittingly became a witness to the apostolic success. In chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested, told to stop speaking about Jesus. The believers came together and prayed for boldness to keep speaking about Jesus, and the high priest just testified. That's exactly what happened. Their prayer for boldness had great effect. The followers of Jesus were bold all over the place, and the city was saturated with the message about Jesus. The apostles' response, we must obey God rather than men. For our kids, my voice, my wife's voice carries more weight than other people's voices. We're the parents. Our voices have a unique authority that others don't. Our kids can distinguish our voice from other voices. When there's mixed messages, they know which voice to follow. In John 10, 27... Jesus expresses something similar when he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. To use a different analogy, there's a chain of command and God is at the top. If the senior commander tells us to speak about Jesus and the junior commanders tell us to be silent about Jesus, the choice is obvious. And what's also obvious is is the junior commanders are insubordinate. And that's what the apostles are saying here in their response. They're not just saying, we are obeying God. They are saying the Sanhedrin is not. It's the Sanhedrin that's actually disobedient, not us. Not only are we obligated to obey God, deep down, is really what we want. Obedience to him is what makes us happy. 1 John 5 3 says that God's commands are not burdensome. And here's the reason why. Since God is a creator, what he commands is in line with who he made us to be and what he made the world to be. When we disobey, we're living against the grain of who we really are and what the world really is. And it goes poorly. He knows how we work best, and his command are like an owner's manual, instruction on how to live freely within who he's made us to be. Frogs were made to leap, and frogs enjoy leaping. Humans were made for holiness, and humans enjoy holiness. The devil can deceive us into thinking unholiness will make us happier, but that empty promise is a road to ruin. Freedom is not the absence of boundaries. That's actually slavery to our own appetites, slavery to the appetites of others. Freedom is the presence of the right boundaries, and that allows us to live in line with who we are and what God has made us to be. From obedience to here, a second accusation, the high priest says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us And the apostles respond, with the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. The phrase, bring this man's blood upon us, is an allusion to the concept of blood guilt in the Bible. It simply means that one guilty of shedding innocent blood needs punishment, deserves to be punished. Simple. The apostles are saying to the Sanhedrin, You are guilty of killing an innocent. Man, You are under blood guilt. And the innocent man you killed is the God-man, the Son of God. And a quick side note here about blood guilt. There's an irony in this charge about blood guilt. If the apostles don't speak about Jesus, blood guilt would actually be on their heads. Later in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The apostles are under such responsibility to share the message, they would, be, they would incur guilt if they weren't speaking. And side note, it's significant that the apostles say to the Sanhedrin, You killed him by hanging him on a tree. Back then, people didn't call crosses trees. So are the apostles say tree and not cross? I think the answer is in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. And it says, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So to say they killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree is saying they killed him because they believe he was cursed. He was cursed by God. The apostles believe the opposite. Look at verse 31. The apostles say God exalted him at his right hand, As leader and savior. So, who the Sanhedrin say is cursed, the apostles say is actually exalted. There are two perspectives in conflict here. Convinced Jesus was cursed, the Sanhedrin seeks to suppress his name. Convinced Jesus was exalted, the apostles seek to speak his name. And here's where it gets really interesting. The apostles have said clearly to this point to the Sanhedrin, you are disobedient and you are guilty. And now they are going to say, you don't need to be. It doesn't have to be this way for you. So verse 31, after asserting the Sanhedrin's guilt for killing Jesus, Back to verse 31, the apostles say God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? To what effect did God exalt Jesus? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What's the goal of the exaltation of Jesus? It's the salvation of sinners. In this specific text, sinful Israelites... The message of salvation, of course, goes beyond Israel. In Acts 1, verse 8, this message will go to Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. In chapter 8, the gospel goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, on jew What the apostles say explicitly here is that repentance and forgiveness is available to Israel including the very Israelites in the room with them right now, rejecting Jesus and accusing his followers. That sin can be repented of and forgiveness can come. And the apostles, I believe, are hoping this happens. When they said the God of our fathers raised Jesus, That's a point of connection, to be a bridge to Jesus. What we are telling you is what the God of our ancestors is doing. This Jesus story is your story. You're stepping away from it, but you can step into it right now. How did the Sanhedrin respond? To go one verse outside of our text for today, verse 23, or 33, sorry. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's disheartening to the least. But rage, visions of murder, isn't the full story here. In chapter 6, verse 7, it says, A great many priests. Became obedient to the faith. The apostles in their captivity had a captive audience. Witnesses can't help but witness. The apostles respond to the accusation of filling Jerusalem with their teaching, they fill the Sanhedrin with the teaching of Jesus. And they don't seek retribution for the antagonists, but salvation. They don't seek vindication over their opponents, reconciliation with God. Response to witness about Jesus is a mixed bag, we can't control it. We can only share and trust the Spirit to do what he will, when he will, with whom he will. This evangelistic burst is no surprise when we read the last verse in our text. For today. And we are witnesses to these things. That's who we are. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Two, our witness in light of the Apostles' witness. Let's be brief. Being a witness is who the Apostles are. Acts 1 8 says, Being a witness to Jesus is what the Holy Spirit is coming to empower them to do. And they indeed are doing it, even though at every turn they're facing opposition and resistance. And like the apostles, we are witnesses by grace through faith. We have seen Jesus. We know Jesus. And the one we know, we are to tell others about. We believe the gospel. And the gospel isn't just for believing. The gospel is for broadcasting. So are you believing and broadcasting This gospel, the weather is nicer in Minnesota right now. More people are out and about. You bump into some neighbors. Is Jesus coming up in conversations? This is not something we want to force, and it's not something that we want to avoid out of fear. So where are we with this? Are you living out the witnessing aspects of your faith? When I see what the apostles are doing here, I ask, how can we have the power to do this? How can we walk in this? How can we live with a supreme confidence in Jesus that we'd also be loyal to him and his mission, even in the face of opposition? How can we be his faithful witnesses, even in a world that is becoming more skeptical and antagonistic about Jesus and Christianity When belief is not as safe as it used to be, when following Jesus has more of a cost than it perhaps did in the past. The first thing to note is that the apostles didn't always live this way. The apostles are not the heroes of this story, and we won't be the heroes of this story either. Because of indwelling sin, the Christian their Christian lives including their witness, our Christian lives, including our witness, are inconsistent. When Jesus was being harassed by the high priest during the time of his crucifixion, the apostles did more backsliding than speaking with boldness. While Jesus was on trial, Peter denied him three times, not even knowing Jesus. He was the anti-witness at that moment. Jesus, however, is the hero of the story. He is the one that was always appropriately and lovingly bold. When we shrink back or we chicken out, his boldness is our boldness by union with him. When we are overly bold, perhaps foolishly more combative than conciliatory, then we should be conceited rather than humble. His gentleness, his humility is kind as our humility and gentleness. None of our screw-ups have the power to condemn us. But Jesus is not only our source of forgiveness when we fail as witnesses, he is also our source of power to bear good fruit as witnesses. Point three, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Did you know... That the gospel is the power of God that saves you. And it's also the power of God that strengthens you. Pastor Ken mentioned this in his sermon last week. One, the gospel saves. Romans 1.16, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel is the power of God to enter the Christian life the gospel is also the power of god to continue on and to grow in the christian life the end part of romans romans 16:25 now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ knowing the gospel meditating on the personal work of jesus strengthens us for the life here now The gospel is the engine that powers us to run on the tracks of God's commands. We don't just believe the gospel, then leave the gospel and go to something else. We believe the gospel, keep growing in our depth of understanding in the gospel, while we keep learning more things in addition to the gospel. So our power to proclaim Jesus will come from believing the Jesus we proclaim. Believing the message of the gospel is what will empower us to share the message of the gospel. We will tell others that Jesus is their leader and savior when we understand that He first leads and saves us. So we'll look more closely at Jesus as a leader and savior with two hopes this morning. That if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this with faith and be saved. And if you are a Christian, You'd be strengthened to live as a Christian, especially in your witness of this Christ. First, Jesus as leader. We're back to obedience for a moment. We all obey something, whether it's our appetites, except so before traffic laws, family culture, et cetera. The only question is what we obey is worthy of our allegiance, whether or not what we obey is worthy of our allegiance. And in Jesus, we find an authority that we find nowhere else. No one else taught like Jesus. Matthew seven twenty nine, 29. The, cr- the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. No one did miracles like Jesus. When he calmed the storm, the apostles were filled with fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? No one died and was raised like Jesus. A Roman centurion who was so captured by the uniqueness and power of Jesus' death on the cross said surely, truly, this was the Son of God. And of course his resurrection is proof that he is God's anointed. Jesus is the leader with the authority that deserves our Allegiance, and here's how knowledge of that, of Jesus as leader, strengthens us. There will come a time when the leadership of Jesus is acknowledged by all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Everyone will bow down to his authority. And through the gospel, Jesus is not just the leader. Jesus is Our leader, Jesus is for us. We belong to Him; He belongs to us. Knowing the ruler of the cosmos is using His vast resources on our behalf gives us confidence to witness and do anything He's calling us to do. With Jesus as our leader, we have the guidance and resources that we need. Before moving on, we need to make an important distinction in Christianity obedience is a response, not a cause. In Christianity, obedience is a response and not a cause. Obedience to Jesus is a response to his love for us. It's not the cause of his love for us. I love my kids not because they obey. I love my kids because they're my kids. And God does the same, only way better. He loves us not because we obey, but because he adopted us. And we are his kids. When we disobey, his love drives him to discipline us, to correct us, but not disown us. So our salvation does not flow out of our obedience. Our obedience flows out of our salvation. Jesus becomes our leader if he is first our savior. Jesus is your savior. My first stint in full-time vocational ministry, I was on staff with the Navigators at Iowa State. Yep, Richard Daniels he was a student at the time. And um, Ron Shimkis was a long-time staff. He was in his 60s, had breakfast with Ron. said, Ron, what, what's kept you going all these years? Why are you still walking with... Jesus. And he quoted to me John 6, 68 through 69. This says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. No shiny new toy on the one hand, no threat on the other hand, Has the power to dislodge commitment to Jesus when we remember that He alone has the words of eternal life. There's no one else that takes us there. There's nowhere else that we can go. What is this eternal life? It is at least two things one, a new home, and two, being at home with God. One, a new home, two, being at home with God. A new home. This world will be restored. God is doing a work to restore this world. In the new heavens, new earth, there are no tears. There is no pain. There are no strained relationships. No one is dissatisfied. Everyone's cup is full. It's not the return to a Stone Age paradise. It's the movement toward the Garden City, the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem culture and nature and wonderful harmony together. It's paradise. In this paradise, number two, at home with God, we will enjoy the ever-expanding capacity to experience more and more and more the glow of the glory of God and be satisfied. And we don't just enjoy the glow of this glory at a distance like seeing a lion at a zoo with a fence and a big gap between us. We enjoy this glow, this glory in the warmth of relationship with God. Revelation 21.3 Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. A glory of eternal life is escape from wrath and torment and punishment that our sin deserves and deliverance to this forever paradise. But the headline glory, this eternal life, is a forever nearness with the one that we esteem most. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, Christ's death does not just get us right with the law, it puts us right with the person. And remembering and believing this is what propels us in our Christian life, in our witness, in walking with Jesus. One of our greatest fears in identifying with Jesus or talking about him, one of our greatest fears, period, is rejection. But when you understand that the one that you esteem most, the one that saw you at your worst, and yet because of his great love, still decided to rescue you, still wanted to draw you near, still wanted to draw you and never let you go and never forsake you, you have the resilience to face rejection from anyone else. It can still hurt, but it can't destroy you. What melts the fear of rejection is the assurance of acceptance, and we have that in Christ. Being called a bad name can't crush us, and being called a good name cannot complete us, because we have a better name than either of those that Jesus has given us that defines us. There is no redefining what Jesus defines. It's settled. We are his beloved, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus and later the apostles faced a wrongful, guilty verdict from the highest court in the land, yet Jesus could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the apostles could share the message of forgiveness to their accusers. How could they do that? They knew the highest court in heaven overrules the highest court in the land, and the court of heaven has declared their innocence. They have nothing to prove. No other verdict has the power to define them. They are free to love their accusers. So Jesus, as our leader, he forever guides and takes care of us. As our Savior, Jesus forever takes us in. If you believe that? If that lands on you, you'll live differently. If you don't believe that, if that doesn't land on you. To the apostles, the choice of who their leader, who their Savior was, was clear. What about you this morning? The last part of this sermon um, is something different. It's going to involve participation from you. Don't worry, you're not going to stand up or set a verse or anything. I'm going to read a quote, and I'm going to ask you some more questions. I'll briefly pause after each question to give you time to reflect, give the spirit space to probe and bring things to mind, all those questions, I want to see if Jesus might do some work on us this morning, in us this morning. Some of you may want to close your eyes, help you focus and pray, and so you don't have to look at me while the room is awkwardly silent. Others of you may want to keep your eyes open so you can see what I look like in the awkwardly silent room. Up to you. But here's a quote, a quote, and then some questions. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones again. He says, the world has problems. You have problems. The world is looking to leaders and saviors to solve their problems. You are looking to leaders and saviors. Who? What? Who and what is highly exalted in your eyes? Is it Jesus? When Jesus is not the one you are turning to, you are not yet to the depths of your problem. When Jesus is the one you are not turning to, you are not yet to the depth of your problem. I'm going to give a series of questions here and brief comment and then pause. The questions. Who are you exalting to be your leader and savior this morning? Who are you turning to? And just kind of priming the pump here. Are you turning to yourself? The Sanhedrin arrested the apostles out of jealousy They didn't want to be removed as the leaders over Israel. And we can be just like them. We can do the same thing. We don't want to lose the lead role in our own life. We want to hold on to that. Be our own saviors. Are you looking to yourself right now as your leader and savior? Are you turning to other people or things? Christian authors, teachers at school, Pastors, physicians, counselors, parents, children, or paychecks, positions at work, food, exercise, education. All these things are good gifts that point to Jesus, but they become curses when they replace Jesus as the leader and savior of your life. So the question What leaders and saviors are you turning to this morning? Reflect. Give the Spirit space to probe for a moment. The Sanhedrin's jealousy blinded them to Jesus. Is there some sin blinding you to who Jesus is? Leading you to counterfeit leaders and saviors right now? Pause. The Spirit probe. Is there a sin that comes to mind? Getting in the way between you and Jesus? Repent of that sin. Lastly, some of you came in struggling this morning, and some of you came in doing okay or doing well. I think many of us came in as a mix of both of those things. And two questions. One, where are you resisting Jesus' leadership in your life, or resisting His saving work? Where are you resisting Jesus' leadership in your life and His saving work? Something comes to mind. Repent of that in your heart. On the other side, where do you see grace in your life? Where do you see that you are obeying Jesus? You are trusting his saving work. Let the Spirit point that out. What might he point out that you have to rejoice over in your heart this morning? Rejoice over that. To close, Jesus is the exalted one. This morning, turn away from false leaders, false saviors, and trust yourself to leadership of Jesus his saving work that times of refreshing may return, or for some, come for the first time. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Exalted One. It is right to focus on you this morning. And I pray that, that your Spirit would warm our hearts to, to Jesus that we see given to us in the Bible. And as we see this Jesus, the glory of this Jesus, we would be changed and transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, come. As we sing, may we sing to this Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church